What a privilege it is for me today, overwhelming in certain aspects, um, to give the Lord's word to the Lord's people on the Lord's day. I pray indeed that um, I'm a blessing to you, that the word of God is a blessing to you, and that I'm able to lift up Christ to the place where he belongs and where he is in his word. We're going to be reading from John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Um, So you can turn there now if you like. When preparing to preach a message where you will not be working through a lengthy passage, chapter, or an entire book week after week, it's hard to settle on a text. When I first settled on John chapter 7, I focused at the beginning of the chapter because of a troubling verse that I'm sure I had read many times, but it never stood out to me so boldly. The more I looked at it, the more profound I found its implications, and I began to wonder if I was reading too much into the text or or making too much of it. So seeking uh, help, I turned to a commentary by Dr. R.C. Sproul. He states, and I quote, One of the principles I teach my seminary students is to try to find the drama in Scripture. I say to them, when you come to a text of Scripture, before you decide what to preach, look for the drama. Because in every passage of the Bible that God the Holy Spirit inspires, there is drama. I have to confess, however, that when I preached John 7, 1 through 13 at St. Andrews, I struggled to find the drama. This passage seems almost like a travelogue, a record of where Jesus was going to go. Would he stay in Galilee or would he go to Judea for the feast? However, as I continue to read over this text and reflect on it, I began to see this as, listen here, one of the most troubling texts I have ever found in the New Testament. A lot of you are familiar with Dr. R.C. Sproul. He's not known for hyperbole or making, uh, you know, exaggerated statements. So that got my attention. He says, he goes on to say, I came to feel that way because of one small sentence that is really just a parenthetical comment added by John. That sentence is, In the text we're about to read. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up. To the, you go up to the feast. I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After, say, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. O our Lord and our God, Father, I'm so acutely aware of how desperately I need you, Father. How much I need your spirit, Father, to reveal what is going on here, Father. Um, 
Free our minds to, to see, to look in, Father. To understand what you would have us to understand, Father. That you may be more glorified in the hearts and the minds of your redeemed children, Father. And if there's one here outside of Christ, oh Lord, may today be the day of salvation for them. Father, please meet with us now, I pray in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so I have three questions that we're going to be examining today from the text. First question is, why does John record Jesus' brothers telling him to, quote, show yourself to the world? Then he states, for not even his brothers believed. That is the parenthetical that R.C. had brought up. John, why do you speak this way? Why would he tell us of Jesus's, or his brother's excitement for Jesus to go up to the festival and to be known by everybody? And then he puts in this little comment, because his brothers did not believe. So that's the first question. The second question is, why does Jesus tell his brothers his time has not yet come, and then goes on to change it to fully come? And then the third question is related to that, and it's, why does Jesus say he's not going to the feast, and then what? Then he goes up to the feast, okay? What is going on there? I would think that John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to dig in. He wants us to see these questions, right? And he wants us to find the answers in the scriptures, okay? So I have a number of points here. Um, this is as a way of introduction. I will tell you when we get to our, our, our points. Basically, I have three points. Um, a lot of sub points, sorry. Uh, the number one point is going to be the manifestation of unbelief. Our second point is going to be, my time has not fully come. And then the third point will be manifestations of biblical belief. As a way of background into the festivals that we heard from Leviticus 23, it tells us uh, of the seven feasts that God gave Israel. These were full of types and shadows um, that would be fulfilled in the first advent of Christ or um, in eternity after his second advent. Of the seven, uh, three were elevated to a place of special importance, okay? And all of the men of Israel were to appear at these festivals. They were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is tied to the Passover and was fulfilled at the cross. Oh, that's a really clear type and shadow of Christ, fulfilled the, the spotless lamb that came and abode for a short time with the Israelites, and then the blood of the spotless lamb was spilled, and the blood was applied to their house, and they consumed the spotless lamb. And then when death came, it passed over when it saw the blood of the spotless lamb. Very clear. Um, the second of the three was the feast. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, feast of weeks or Pentecost, and the third feast is where we're going to be. Um, focusing on because of the text and that's what's at hand there it's the feast of booths okay some of your translations may say the feast of tabernacles you'll notice that there's a difference there okay so let me tell you what's going on the feast of booths uh which it was called during the time of the exodus that's when it was given after they left egypt when they were traveling to canaan they were given this festival to remember what god had done that's what brother marlin read to us about that the institution of that they actually created booths and they, they stayed in them. And I imagine this was fun for the children. Oddly enough, they lived in tents at this time, so it wasn't real different. But there was a, a festival to commemorate this. 
but it was renamed to the Feast of Tabernacles when they moved into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. Um, and its meaning was expanded upon, okay? The Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous of the festivals celebrated um, at the end of Israel's festival calendar and coinciding with the harvest. It was a, like, it would be Christmas for us, okay? It was the high holiday for them. It was a time where Israel celebrated Jehovah's temporal provision. The tabernacle, although a physical place, it denotes an idea of fellowship. And that's, that's vital to understand what's going on here, okay? This idea of fellowship. The tabernacle, all the, I'm sorry, it can be stated that Jehovah condescended, right? He came down and he tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness. You follow me with that? It's important to consider this aspect of fellowship when considering our text due to the fact that the feast commemorating God's fellowship with Israel is at hand while God incarnate is literally tabernacling with them in the person of Christ. Okay? So, the festival that's there is to celebrate the fellowship of God with Israel, and in the midst of this, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ is there, and then in our text, he is there with his brothers as they're discussing this, okay? Our first point, manifestation of unbelief, okay? So in chapter 6, which uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, it says after these things, we think there's roughly a seven-month period that's passed, or a six-month period, judging that they mentioned the Feast of Passover in chapter 6. We see a a macrocosm of unbelief, okay? So this would be the, the perspective from the mountaintop or from the hill as you're looking down on the unbelief of the masses. A grand display to the numerous followers who would shortly show their unbelief. This unbelief does not look like what we first may think of when we hear the word unbelief. This unbelief doesn't look like, I'm sorry, um, at least not in our postmodern culture. We are prone to think of the most visible, angry, and ultimately foolish displays of unbelief. Okay, so by nature, when we say that, we think of the most extreme um, displays or the, the most extreme ideas of unbelief, where, where God has given a person over to the absurdity, due, to absurdity due to their formalized unbelief. Okay, so what's that look like today? Today, it's most commonly, uh, it most commonly takes the shape of atheism. However, atheism is a strange and rare condition in the history of man. Romans chapter 1 gives us the idea that atheism is a known lie that an individual repeats so often that they've convinced themselves. They convince themselves of this truth because the only alternative is the God that they know exists. It's the suppression of obvious truth so that the practice of sin can take place without the constraints of a conscience. As the word of God records in Matthew 7, Many there will be on that day, right? The ones that cry out and say they've done many wonderful things in God's name. Those many will profess the works they've done unto God, not atheism, okay? And so I'm, I'm trying to labor the point that when we hear of the unbelief in the text here, 
Don't let your minds go to what we see as the most common modern display of unbelief, for generally that's an anomaly. Christ will declare to them who, who, who profess their goodness, I never knew you. What chilling and ultimately terrifying words spoken by God. This is the unbelief of the masses through human history, right? The unbelief that professes their goodness to God. This is the unbelief in John 6. And this is the unbelief in Jesus' brothers. Or is it? And that's the question I want you guys to examine, okay? So we have a contrast. You see in verse 1 that Jesus was, he would not walk around in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him, right? And so there is an unbelief. The, the, the Jews that are referred to there are the Jewish leaders. There is an unbelief housed in the Jewish leaders that hates Christ so much that they want him dead. And absolutely, they're in unbelief. But his brothers, they don't feel that way, do they? What do his brothers want? His brothers want uh, him to magnify himself, to show the world his, his miracles, right? But then John tells us that they don't believe. So the question I want you to, to be pondering is, is that the same unbelief? Obviously, it's unbelief. It's unregenerate, right? But it looks very different. Is it the same unbelief? The unbelief of the Jewish leaders in verse 1 made them want to kill Jesus, not make him show his miracles to the world. Now consider the scenario that John 6 records in chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, women, and children, right? The crowd is overjoyed and excited about Jesus. He perceives that they want to take him by force and make him king. But when he meets the same crowd on the other side the next morning, what happens? They demand more miracles. They demand breakfast. You, you, you guys, did you guys read through that, some of you guys? You see that scenario there, right? It's a long chapter. And the, the feeding of the 5,000, very familiar with that. Jesus goes up to the mountain. The disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. He meets them on the or he appears to them actually on the water, walking on the water. Kind of a private miracle. It's real interesting that most of the miracles were, were public. He appears to them. He goes across. And the, the, masses, the, the masses that wanted to make Jesus Christ king the day before are there. And they have this back and forth exchange where they're like, what are you going to do now? And he says, you didn't seek me because of the miracles, the meaning of the miracles. You sought me because your bellies were full. And they say, well, Jesus, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do? And he says, Moses didn't give you manna. My father gave you manna and your fathers ate it. And what happened? They're dead, right? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. And his point, as he goes on to make this, seek after the bread that doesn't perish. And what bread is that? That's him, right? He's the bread of life. So they go in this back and forth, and then Jesus begins to push in on him, all right? And that's what Christ does to us with his truth. He pushes in on us. And he tells them, unless you eat my flesh, you can't have eternal life. You know, consider who he's saying this to, right? Consider all of the dietary laws, all the restrictions. This is, in their ears, this is cannibalism, right? He's not telling them that literally. He's pushing in on their unbelief. He's pushing in on their inability to see what he's saying. And so in response to that, 
He doesn't stop to break this down. Consider our, our infinitely wise and loving God. What does he do when they push back on, on him? He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He ratches it up. He turns it to 11 on them. And, and what is the result? Many follow him no more, right? Many follow him no more. So that's chapter 6. That is the macro view. That is the, the, the taking in the landscape of unbelief of the masses, okay? Next subpoint is the micro view. So if you, if you can picture, we're going to focus in now. Instead of Jesus teaching the, the 5,000 men, women, and children, the disciples that are out there, we're, we're now in a scenario in the very next chapter of him and his half-brothers, the, the sons of Joseph and Mary. And in chapter 7, we see quite a strange scenario. Again, first, verse 5 uh, is what Dr. Sproul describes as one of the most disturbing texts I have ever found in the New Testament. That should at least get our attention, okay? We see here the same unbelief demonstrated by the large crowd, but it's held by Jesus' half-brothers. These weren't people who heard him teaching an afternoon on the side of the hill, okay? These are his half-brothers. Imagine, those of you with siblings, having an older sibling that never sinned, that never had a bad attitude, that never talked back to his parents, that never lied. These are his brothers. Consider the brothers' words. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The crowds of chapter 6 may have wanted to make Jesus king, but it would seem as though his brothers would like to make him chief priest or at least the most famous miracle worker in all of Judea. And we must not forget that John tells us they don't believe. So there is a type of unbelief that desires the exaltation of Christ's name. And it's deceptive. We must ask ourselves, why did they want this? Why did Jesus' brothers want this? John's statement that for not even his brothers believed in him forces us to examine the motivations of Jesus' brothers and in turn, we must be given to self-examination. John's words tell us plainly that we can be excited for Jesus to demonstrate his power to the world and be dead in our sins. We can lift our hands in praise, shed tears of emotion, have what is called a religious experience, and not know the God of Scripture. This is a biblical truth, and it's demonstrable in our nation today. Kurt mentioned some of this. 
We claim to have 208 million Christians. That's a percentage that was calculated by Pew about a year ago. To be extremely generous, since there's no definition there, we can take half of that. We can take less than half of that. 100 million Christians in America. And we produce 60% of all the world's pornography. The majority of it here in Southern California. We've aborted over 1 million of our tiny citizens in a one-year span multiple times. The highest that I saw was like 1.3 little children made in the image and likeness of God in one calendar year, over and over. These things are happening at the same time. Why do I bring this up? The only explanation is many who sit in church and are excited for Jesus don't believe. There's no other way to reconcile those truths. We cannot have a hundred million Americans indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God and be producing the majority of filth going out around the world and slaughtering our own children. It's not possible. The only explanation is that some that sit in church and consider themselves excited for Jesus don't believe. This has always been the tendency of fallen man. Consider those who, who cried out, who cried out, Hosanna, as Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, scrambling to lay down uh, uh, palm leaves and their clothes to give Christ uh, a royal entry, entrance um, during Holy Week. So we see that. And then a week later, they shortly would when given the chance to let, Bar- uh, to let Jesus go, cried out, give us Barabbas. And then they cried out, crucify him. So consider the contrast in one week of those crying out, Hosanna, and then crying out, crucify him. And I understand that there's some debate over who they were and how many of them were there. I think I'm confident in saying that some, at least some that were crying out, Hosanna, were also crying out, crucify him. In fact, consider how many of the disciples who Christ loved and and walked with for three, three and a half years, and he taught them daily. Consider how many of them even made it to the cross. Just one. It's just John. What utter blindness. There is a form of religion, a, a form that can pass as godliness, that cares only for self. It cares only for what the power of Jesus' name can do to exalt self, to lift my name up and display it to the world. Its motivation is the pride of life. Its sacrament is the praise of men. And its eternity is the lake of fire. Again, there is a form of godliness that only seeks, its only motivation is the pride of life. Its sacrament or its practice is to receive the praise of men, and it ends in the judgment of God. 
I'm going to move on to the leaving of the, the fulfillment of the feast to celebrate the feast, right? That's what his brothers want to do. Now consider what is about to happen. As we can so clearly see now, looking backwards, the fulfillment of the feast of Passover in Jesus' death on the cross. We can also see the irony of Jesus' brothers leaving God incarnate to celebrate God visiting Israel. Do we see this? They want to go. Who are they with? The, the Messiah, the promised one, God in the flesh is with them. But they want to go to celebrate God fellowshipping with Israel. Man can and often does possess a form of religion that, if given a chance, would abandon Jesus Christ himself to go celebrate the very truth they just left. Celebrating the promise over the delivery, the idea over the reality, the gift over the giver. This is dead religion. And it's the natural state of a man's heart, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It is pervasive and it abounds in the American and Western church today and is able to grow so vastly. Why? Why do you think it, it can grow to the, to the levels it is? I would submit to you that it can grow so vastly due to the relative ease in which a public profession of Christ can be made. But I, I, think, I think our Lord may be changing that. We don't know. But it would seem as though it is changing a bit, right? That the public profession of Christ, or at least desiring to be obedient to meeting and practicing our faith, may come with a small cost now in society. It's interesting times. So, so why does Jesus, why do Jesus' brothers leave? We've already seen the short answer. And what is that? They don't believe, right? That's what John tells us. They don't believe. But let us look back to the text. John records Jesus' words in verse 6 and 7, and he states, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He's speaking to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He doesn't testify against it. He testifies of it. He tells the truth about the world. So why did they go? They went because they were of the world. That is what Jesus is telling us. They went in obedience to the law to be good Jews. And Jesus tells them about the condition of their soul, but they can't hear him. They're going to be obedient. And they're leaving Christ. I, I want to illustrate, if I can, especially to the, to, the, to the children, the young ones, especially um, those of you children here who are old enough to have um, gotten downwind from yourself, if you can understand what I'm saying, who um, I think all kids know you guys do things wrong, right? You all know you've sinned. But you get to a certain age where you see in yourself for the first time, maybe, things you think, uh, things you say you do, say or do, 
And you know that's not right. Uh, there's something wrong there. And the human nature would be to, to suppress that, right? I want you to consider what's going on here. This is Jesus's brothers. Uh, Jesus's brothers not listening to Jesus, right? They had the oracles of God, the, the actual incarnate God with them in their house. And they didn't believe. And so, if you're, if you're tracking with me, young ones, what I want to exhort to you, or, or how I want to address you is, is, is in this. As some of you, you're growing up in houses where the Word of God is uh, elevated and it's taught. And you have parents, one or two parents, who so care for your soul. They intercede for you. They, they teach you and they sing the songs of Zion to you. And above all people that have ever walked on this earth, you are blessed because of that. You are blessed of God to have a home like that. In fact, you have a home that many of the adults, if you look around here, would have desired to have. You have a, a childhood that many of us would have desired to have where we, didn't, we weren't allowed to practice our sin into our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, to refine our sin. You have a home where your parents plead with you and teach you, and they care for your soul. And, and, and I would exhort you, young ones, to, to not harden your heart to so rich a blessing from God. Again, you are privileged amongst all people on this earth. Billions, literally billions of people on this earth today do not have the home you have. This, is, this was the scenario of Jesus' brothers, right? They're there. They don't see. They don't see the blessing of God. Well, well then why does Jesus say... He's not going to the, the festival, and then he goes anyway, okay? The option clearly is not that he's lying. The reason that he says he's not going and then he goes is because he's not a good Jew. He's a perfect Jew. He's going to keep the law, right? All men had to go. He's a perfect Jew, and he's the only one that ever was, is, or will be. He kept the law perfectly and on, on behalf of all who have believed in him. So if you are here and you've trusted in Christ, praise the Lord. He kept the law on your, on your behalf. But Jesus makes his point clear to his brothers. He's not going the way they want him to go. He's not going for his own glory or the fame of his brothers. He's going, why? For the glory of his father alone. Consider our New Testament reading from today. Notice how it mirrors Jesus' response to his brothers, right? We heard Brother Marlon read about the, the wedding in Canaan and his mother wanting him to, to, to do something about the, 
running out of wine, and he says his time has not yet come. In both scenarios, he states his time has not yet come only to do the very thing it seems, he seems to suggest he's not going to do. When the scriptures give us these sort of scenarios, we, we should be curious. We should desire to, to dig in and find out what's going on here. Clearly, Jesus is speaking about more than just the immediate situation. Also notice in verse 12, who was there at the wedding? Did you guys catch that at the end of the reading? Who was there? The brothers, right? They're there at the wedding of Canaan. They saw that. And here we are six months later. To our second heading, Christ saying, my time has not fully come. When asked by his brothers, Jesus first states that his time has not yet come. This is understood to be in reference to the way and manner in which his brothers desired him to arrive. Okay? They have an idea about how he's going to go. He's not having it. It was the custom for groups and caravans to meet up along the journey and to make the entrance uh, make an entrance to the festival. People would generally know the people expected to be in the groups. And John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus' time to go to the feast had not yet come. All right, so did you follow on me? Did I lose you on that? I'm sorry if I didn't explain it well. Let's see if I can, if I can sum it up like this. There would be groups going together. So it would be like in, if we had a, uh, something that happened here in San Diego and the, all of the subdivisions, all the communities came together. And you would know, like, when everybody showed up with the, uh, the American flags and the MAGA hats, right? That's East County. And then when the people showed up in shorts and flip-flops, that's OB. And then people showed up in bicycles, that's Coronado. And the people that showed up with the masks and the face shields and the gloves, and La Jolla or wherever it is, you would know generally what, from what area they were from. But not only that, because of the community, you'd, you'd kind of know who was in that group, okay? So Jesus isn't going with that group because they seek to kill him. But he's going to be obedient. He's not going their way, and he's not going with them. And that's what he's telling them, okay? But then he goes. In reference to his time coming in full, A.W. Pink offers help. And I quote, these words of Christ must be interpreted in the light of the immediate context. His brethren had said, go show thyself to the world. But his time to do so had not come, nor has it yet arrived. As of now, this is, this is uh, Pink's point here. He will publicly reveal his majesty and glory. To this he referred when he said, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then shall he say, and these are the words of God. These are the words of Christ, who is the definition of love. Hear them. But those men enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. The God of love. How little then. Did these brethren, Jesus' brothers, realize the import of the request? Had he openly manifest himself to them before the cross, it would have involved the perdition of the whole human race. For then there had been no atoning blood under which sinners might shelter. 
The brothers didn't understand what they were asking. If Christ were to have, sh- have truly shown himself to the world, I mean, they got a glimpse of that at the transfiguration, right? But if he had unveiled the humanity and stood there in his majesty, the whole world would have been damned, for there had been no atonement on the cross yet. Little did they understand. So our third point, manifestation of biblical belief. And this is short. You can turn with me to James chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses starting in chapter... um, 3 verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. How is this a manifestation of belief? Are these just the characteristics? Well, they are. But I bring this text up to you because I want you to consider who's saying this. The Holy Spirit, obviously, but who's who's penned those words? Did you catch that? What book are we in? We're in in James. Who's James? He's a brother of Jesus, right? The, The one who we were told and we saw only cared about self. What does he say here? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He says jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart is demonic. This is one of the brothers, right? He would go on to believe. Jude, also. They gave us books in the Bible. Let us consider who wrote these words. James, one who is called a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and John, right? The pillars, the pillars of the church, or the brothers who don't believe. What is the manifestation of belief? It's repentance. It's a growing in godliness. It's a desire for the name of God to be elevated for His name, not ours. And though your whole life you may have been about self, you need to do nothing more than look unto Christ 
and desire forgiveness in him. And you can be like James. You can be like Jude. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is in our text today, only cared about his own name. He now refers to self-seeking and er as earthly, sensual, and demonic. The difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus is abundantly clear. There's a, there's a day of, of judgment coming, okay? And it's been said that we desire to make uh, tear-filled converts, not fear-filled converts, okay? So it's not about scaring people. But the reality of the matter is fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that it is a component, right? And I know I remember Brother Kurt mentioning some weeks ago the illustration made so famous um, by Jonathan Edwards in The Sinners of a Hand of an Angry God that it, it paints, it describes the sinner in this precarious place that it's, it's like the jaws of hell are open and, and he's dangling above them by a single spiderweb thread, right? It's a wonderful mind picture. The flames are coming up around him and if it, if it even gets close to that web and it furls, he falls. And that's, that's a wonderful illustration. I'm not going to disagree with it. To, to show the, precari uh, the pre precarious place that we are outside of Christ. But, but the scriptures paint a different picture on the day of judgment. It paints a picture that those outside of Christ will be picked up by God himself and cast into a lake of fire. That the, the gaze of the Almighty will be on the individual as everybody is around. And those that have had their sins forgiven in Christ, the, 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 though they may have prayed for that individual and loved them deeply, will confess that what God has done is right. And so the desire here is not to scare, but that you would understand what God has done in Jesus Christ to redeem wretched, sick sinners. Jesus didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. The, the irony there is what? We're all sick. It's the one who sees the chains and the malady that knows that there's something wrong, who comes to the great physician that can receive forgiveness. So the exhortation today is, if you are sick, come to Christ. If you are self-righteous, come to Christ. Though your sins be as scarlet, he will make them as white as snow. He doesn't just cancel your sin debt, right? He clothes you in a righteousness not your own. I want to close uh, with a passage from Joshua. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. It says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served, be, uh, served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, the, the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Right. 
Look unto Christ and be saved. Our Lord and our God. Oh, Father, we deserve nothing but your wrath. A holy and righteous God that we cannot fathom, but rich in mercy, Father, not willing that any would perish in their sin, Father. There is a form of godliness pervasive in the land that, disgui- that disguises itself as true belief, Father, but it only desires the exaltation of self. Father, hear my prayer in the name of Christ. Devastate that, Father. Oh, Father, if there are any here regenerate of you that have been shaken, Father, that is not my desire. May they be encouraged by Christ. But, Father, for the soul outside of Christ, may today be the day of salvation. May they... Maybe for the first time, behold Christ as altogether lovely, more beautiful than anything our minds could set themselves on, Father. And do this, Father, in a way that gives you the honor and the glory you deserve. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.